Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 297th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Andy Panko. Andy is the owner of Tenant Financial, a virtual independent RIA that oversees $70 million in assets under management for 43 retired client households. What's unique about Andy, though, is how shortly after launching his practice, he created a Facebook group so that he could share his expertise directly with the types of clients he wanted to serve, which unexpectedly became so successful that in just two short years, he fully reached his client capacity goal that he set out to as he went from zero to $70 million. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, after seeing little success in his traditional marketing efforts like seminars and creating profiles on advisor referral sites, Andy decided instead to create a Facebook group focused on taxes in retirement so that he could more directly engage with and show his expertise to the prospects he wanted to work with. How Andy built the initial list of members for his Taxes and Retirement Facebook group to gain enough momentum for Facebook's own algorithm to start making his group more visible and bring in even more prospects. And how Andy's Facebook group is still gaining momentum, but he's purposefully decided to not take on any more new clients so he can keep capacity and flexibility for his current clients. And instead now has dedicated a page on his website with a list of other advisors with a similar focus so that they can share in the prospect funnel he's created. We also talk about how after listening to industry podcasts on his commute while working in the traditional for corporate finance world, Andy's eyes were open to the possibilities of financial planning, which led him to pursue his CFP marks along with some other designations before he ever quit his old job to launch his new firm to ensure he could hit the ground running when it was time. How after seeing his mother's financial advisor was not exactly helping her gain the most that she could from social security claims, Andy decided to take it upon himself to learn more about retirement planning to help her which led to the aha moment for him as he realized he really enjoyed that type of planning and would focus his own practice on helping retirees with value-added tax planning. And how once Andy knew what type of practice he wanted to launch, he intentionally structured it with a flat fee model so he could clearly project what his revenue would be and then use his business projections to determine the target of how much savings he'd need to set aside to cover the first three years while his client base got off the ground and ramped up. And be certain to listen to the end where Andy shares how even though he intentionally set out to be a solopreneur for the flexibility and control, he's now looking to fill the gap of camaraderie and brainstorming that he misses when he was part of a larger firm. How Andy didn't realize he was inadvertently creating a virtual practice by gaining new clients through his Facebook group, but decided it was a positive for him as he can maintain a more casual experience and approach with his clients. And why Andy believes that though it may take time and be difficult to achieve, it's so important for those starting in the financial services industry to work hard to find the right position for them that suits their needs and aligns with their values to ensure that they can build a longer, much more fulfilled career. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Andy Panko. Welcome, Andy Panko, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I'm really excited about today's episode and 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 talking a bit about it's basically like social media to grow your advisory business, like social media to really actually grow your advisory business. 
uh, I, I, you know, there's there's been so much focus around social media for I guess really the better part of of ten years now. Like early 2010s, the industry started talking about social media as this great new marketing channel, driven in no small part by a lot of social media consultants that were really trumpeting social media as the future marketing channel. But you know, then like the past ten years has gone by, more and more advisors are engaged in social media. On at least if you look at industry numbers, LinkedIn number one. Facebook number two, although mostly for personal stuff, and then like Twitter third, and then there's a long tail of Instagram and TikTok and the rest. Yeah. And, and so like lots of engagement, really little actual client growth. Uh, and in fact, like we we did a study on the Kitsis platform of advisor marketing and found social media had one of the highest failure rates of marketing strategies, like people who did it for a year and literally didn't get a single client. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really time consuming to do it. And I know you have had to, to put it mildly, like radically different results, basically like filled up a target client pace in the better part of two years, driven entirely by growing on social media with a particular focus into Facebook groups. And and so I just I'm excited to talk today about like what does it look like when you grow like when you grow a practice with social media that like actually grows with social media? Like what have you done that makes Facebook uh, a client driver for you that nobody else seems to be figuring out how to do to make clients come in the way that you have? Yeah, I I have some thoughts how and why it worked, but I'd be lying if I were to say there was there isn't a a healthy dose of good luck uh, and and I guess random timing thrown in there. So maybe to to kick us off, um, let me actually start by having you describe just your advisory firm, like what you do and how you're positioned, and then we'll come back into the like how did you actually grow it over the past couple of years to get it to where it is. Sure. I, I think my backstory will help tremendously in, in framing my views and philosophies and thoughts on the industry and why I did things the way I did. So, so we can get into that. But my, as far as my, my business as it stands today, launched it November 1st, 2019 from True Scratch, uh, laser focused on being a solo RIA, fee-only RIA, which, which I am. Never had intentions of hiring, outsourcing, power planner help, et cetera. Wanted just- the quintessential lifestyle type practice. And, and why? I mean, like, was it that sort of quintessential lifestyle label? Like, just I want to, you know, get enough income to pay my life and let me do the things that I want to do. And then I want the flexibility. So that's the goal. Like, was that where you were going with it? Yeah, largely. And and again, going back to my 20 years prior, still in financial services, but on the corporate side, that sort of built or, or let me decide what I did and didn't want out of my personal and professional life going forward. So that sort of uh, painted the picture for me that a lifestyle practice with flexibility, with control, without employees, without a lot of bureaucracy is, is the way I want to do things. And so I know for at least some parts of the industry, there are people that use Sort of solo lifestyle practice in a very positive connotation, right? You know, the 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 freedom, the flexibility uh, to to do what you want. There are frankly some that use it in a more negative tone and context of like it implies small in a not necessarily good way or or <laughs> oh yeah or limitations. Like, was that a concern for you? Did that did that phase you? Like, just no. Were you thinking about or getting comfortable with solo lifestyle practice? Funny you say that. I mean, no, it, it didn't phase me. I, I knew, regardless what you label it, I, I had a very clear intention of what I wanted my personal and professional life to look like vis-a-vis 
me building this advisory practice to where I'm pretty sure, you know, I, I was, I would have been able to get it. So you had a clear vision of lifestyle solo and it, it just sounds like for you, it was, it was control flexibility. Like that was the driver. Yeah. So, so let me try not to get too off on a tangent here, but my, my backstory is important. So I, I graduated college in 2000, went to school for finance, which, you know, is normal sort of corporate finance stuff, but wanted to be what I thought an advisor was. I ultimately wanted to help people make decisions about money. So logically, I interviewed at a lot of the places that were interviewing on campus for for roles they called financial advisor, and quickly uh-huh. figured out. Yeah, you know, you, you know, I'm going with this. You know, we're about uh, to I can age. Come to see yeah. where this may be leading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, not so not which, to name which, names, but which large? Right, so what, one of the large insurance companies, <laughs> multiple large insurance companies. Uh, one of which is a well-known multi-level marketing thing. Uh, a few of the major wirehouses. And, and quickly realized they were all just sell, sell, sell. They weren't about advising and, you know, had multiple rounds of interviews, if you want to call them that. All but one was purely commissioned. One of the wirehouses at least had a first small year living stipend that went away after the second, after the first year. So I, I quickly realized it just felt, felt dirty. And I'm not knocking sales. I'm not knocking the products or services they sold. It just wasn't me. I was very clear. I'm not a salesperson. I would be the worst ever at having to sell in the conventional sense of the word. So I kind of got disenfranchised with what I thought the financial advisory industry was and, and gave mm-hmm. up on, on that. Um, stumbled into an actuarial job at a large U.S. insurer. My, my resume was floating around on monster.com at the time. Uh, they found me an actuarial uh, role and, and I took it here in New Jersey. And it, it was cool. You know, the first year I was doing reporting on um, a pension fund product that they managed doing sort of the, the actuarial annual valuations of, you know, liability versus assets and stuff. And it, it was a junior role, reporting role, kind of kind of got bored. And so I wanted to see and do as much as I could as I was young and eager. So I kind of put myself on my own rotation program at this insurance company. I had four jobs there in four years, all on my terms. I didn't get you know kicked out or whatever. I all, they were all voluntary moves. My second one there was in there helping manage your general account. So doing a lot of the portfolio uh, management reporting and analysis for assets and liabilities. My third role there was in their securities lending department, which learned a boatload about trade desks and behind the scenes of how Mm. insurance companies make money and where idle pots of securities go and how they get used. And uh, my fourth role was uh, private placement credit research. So doing investment analysis of borrowers looking to to borrow private money. So you're just really deep into into the back end guts of what happens with really large institutions with really large pools of money. Yes, exactly. In this case, specifically insurance, but a lot of the stuff applies just the same across banks and brokerages. But um, in that time, so I stayed there for four years, largely because they were paying 90% for me to get my MBA through a part-time program at, at Rutgers University. Uh, so I was going to you know work at the day, school during the night, bang that out in two and a half years, which was intense. But um, got that done, and sure enough, you know they they paid ninety percent, so I paid like I don't know three grand out of pocket for my MBA. Wow! Um, So nice deal, good incentive to hang out for four years above and beyond, getting some good experience in the work environment itself. Exactly. Make sure I learned a lot. As I said, I put myself in my own rotation there. And then with uh, MBA in hand, I was like, okay, let me see what this will get me. There was no requirement to stay after completing the MBA, even though they paid for it. So uh, pretty soon after I got my my degree, left, um, ended up at a large Japanese bank doing 
counterparty credit analysis, which I'd never heard of and didn't know existed. Uh, it was hey, wait, doing... this is like mid 2000s at this point. This was 2004, summer 2004. Yeah. All right, so like that's a that's a heck of a time to start going in the counterparty world because you are you are in the lead up for all all yes. things financial crisis. Like this is this is the peak era of. Oh yeah, uh, rate swaps and and credit default swaps and all the stuff that was getting built as layers and layers on top of the the mortgage housing market. Which is interesting you say that because that's exactly what I did. I worked at a bank where we did uh, interest rate derivatives, FX, and credit default you know credit derivatives with uh, hedge funds and other other financial institutions. So I did uh, the analysis, basically the, the counterparty credit analysis of who we we're willing to take exposure to and how much and stuff like that. So not necessarily analyzing the like the investments itself, but literally the counterparty like, okay, if this credit default swap has to pay because the thing defaults, can the large investment bank on the other end of this actually pay and make good or I guess as it turned out, or, or could it be the Bear Stearns or Lehman? <laughs> Uh, uh, of, of the future that, that yes yeah. that can't make yep. good on this thing basically and for a few years I did the counterparty analysis you know the people we were um, in the other side of the trade with and then also for a few years at that same place did market risks so okay. that that was digging into the products themselves the interest rate derivatives the FX the credit derivatives uh, so again learned a phenomenal amount about the behind the scenes of how this whole industry works and how the products work and what have you. Same thing. Every few years, though, I kind of got antsy, got got a little complacent, wanted to see and do and learn more. So I kind of bounced around at, at a lot of the large, major global investment banks doing more or less the same stuff, largely uh, f- providing financing and derivative trades to hedge funds and private equity funds is the majority of my career. Um, and, and same thing, just learned a boatload about the products, the strategies in the process of being around and doing intensive due diligence on investment managers. I just learned a phenomenal amount about the products they trade, their investment strategies, their risk management, their treasury, their operations, and just got such a, such a, um, uh, you know, full body cavity search of how, Institutional asset managers, namely alternative asset managers, function and, and the products that they use. So super valuable stuff. Um, but all the while, I, I still always had this itch to help individuals, right? I, I made good money, worked with great people, learned a ton doing what I did, but never really truly fulfilled in that I didn't feel like I was making a difference per se. Um, and always sort of wanted to, to get back into or, you know, get into sort of the personal uh, individual side of financial stuff. So what the financial advising stuff you wanted to do originally, but didn't didn't find and get when you started doing interviews, and it was all wirehouse and insurance company, uh, investment insurance sales jobs. Yep. And even along the way, I have family members who were working with financial advisors, traditional percent of AUM advisors. And I, I tagged along on some of those meetings between my family members and those advisors. And I wasn't really impressed still with that part of the industry, you know, whereas in college, it was all just sell, 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 which I didn't like. Now it was all just sort of gather assets, charge handsomely, uh, come in every quarter for an overly convoluted flip book about investment returns. And and that's about it. So that also sort of rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, okay, I still don't think I like this financial advisory thing based on what I see, even though it's slightly different than just pushing insurance on people. Um, and, and what really sort of blew the lid off for me was, I guess it was 2016, maybe. 
I was like, let, let me let me look more into this financial advisory thing to see if anything changed and came across the XY Planning podcast. And man, that was it. Hearing the stories of other folks on there, I was like, wait a second. Yes, you can actually give advice, give planning, how you think it should be done, not just selling product, not just gathering assets. Uh, you can so charge this, differently. This the, you know, this was the XYPN Radio podcast. That's correct, XYPN Radio. Okay, 2016 ish, I think. I don't know, give or take a little. Um, also, what coincided with that was was my mom, who again worked with a traditional, you know, well, I think he was one and a quarter percent of AUM guy. Uh, she was transitioning into retirement and was trying to figure out her Social Security claiming decision. And she has one of the more complicated ones, where she's divorced from my father. They're married for ten years. She's of an age where she can still do the restricted application thing. Okay, and her her advisor didn't quite know the specifics of it. He knew enough to know like, yeah, there's something else going on here, but I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what. So I, I helped her dig in and research social security, which up to that point I knew nothing about. I, I frankly thought it was like a forced savings account. The government set up for all of us, um, which now I know is dramatically uh, not that. No, kind of, kind of the other end, but yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, but in the process of helping her research that just like the, the proverbial light went off I was like, wow, this, this is what I thought advice and planning should be. My mom getting her social security, right. Is the most impactful thing she can do for her future more so than overcomplicating, a you know, a portfolio of two dozen different mutual funds or whatever. Right. Like, th- this is it. And so that coincided with me finding the XYPN radio podcast and was like, boom, this is my future. And from that point forward, it was just laser focused on, okay, let me learn as much as I could about the industry, about the different ways to do things, how and why I want to do stuff and bringing it all back. After having spent at that point, uh, I guess this would have been 16 years in the industry, changing jobs every few years, I realized the problem's not that industry. The problem's me. It's just, it's not what I want to do. It's not fulfilling. Again, money was great. People were great. I, I learned a ton, but like, I don't, I don't want to do this for another 20 something years. So that, that set my, and, and I had a long commute into and out of midtown Manhattan from suburban New Jersey, you know, so work long lots hours, of podcast listening time, mm-hmm. Lo- soaked up lots of podcasts sitting on New Jersey transit trains for an hour and a half every day, plus subway, New York city subway, plus walking as well. Um, and, and just, you know, I, I managed people. I worked in really large places. I, I've gone through the dog and pony show of having to do semi-annual reviews and, and all that bureaucratic stuff. Not to say they're not important, but I didn't enjoy it. And, and I just like, I don't want that. I want something small. I want more control. I want more flexibility over my life in terms of I don't want to have to commute, you know, two and a half hours a day. I don't want to be shackled to a desk from, from you know, 830 to 6 every day. Um, I, I want more discretion with what I do, how I do it. I want something more meaningful and fulfilling. I, I want to help individuals, not just help hedge funds make more money. And, and that all sort of framed, okay, uh, I want to do this retirement planning. And I knew I wanted to focus on retirement planning for whatever reason. I'm very fascinated by that and IRAs and taxation matters. I have zero interest in helping or working with people like myself, you know, 40 years old with kids in a house and saving for college. It just doesn't do it for me professionally. And I'm, so, so that, curi- that, that, that was it. I'm curious to hear a little more about that. I just feel like for a lot of advisors coming into the industry, particularly with sort of alternative models, which which I know you have, we'll get into more soon, but you know, you, you, you had mentioned earlier, you were not a big fan of the AUM model. I know you, you don't run one now. A lot of advisors I find that that do that, like it drives in part because they're frankly like they're in their 30s and 40s. They're looking at their peers in their 30s and 40s. Everyone's trying to find an advisor 
a lot of them are having trouble finding a good advisor who will just give them advice. And so they literally make a business to help themselves and their peers. So I'm very struck that you were like, I really don't want to work with individuals like myself. Uh, I guess in essence, you're saying like, I kind of like, I want to work more with individuals like what my mom's going through than what I'm going through. Yes. And I think that's why my, my real sort of inflection point in life and in business was helping my mom with her social security decision. And, and that, I guess, just sort of set the tone for, okay, you know, that, that really sparked it for me. That was clearly retirement focused. And uh, I don't know, it just, from that point forward, it was like, yep, I, this retirement thing. Okay. And, and I view it as a big complex puzzle. I'm a fairly technical guy. So I, you know, the more I researched and read and learned, I realized retirement, not to say the accumulation stage of life, the building and saving stage doesn't have a lot of parts, isn't a lot of value to be had. But I think once you hit the point where you're retired and start to decumulate, yeah. I think it's actually more technical. There's more involved planning and, and, and melding together a cohesive plan about pensions and social security and taxes and home equity and IRA distributions and all that stuff. So, so that fascinated me um, and, and still does to this day. And I haven't looked back from day one. It was like, yep, retirement's what I want to do. I knew I wanted to make a strong tax angle for, from what I saw about the industry. I also realized... Uh, majority of advisors uh, don't or flat out can't do tax advice, which I thought was a tremendous disservice because I realize there's tax implications to virtually every financial angle of someone's life. Yet most advisors say we can't do tax planning. So, so that that's what I wanted to do. Um, pull that all together. You know, tax efficient, retirement focused financial planning, investment management. That's what I wanted, and I wanted to do it as a complete solo. Interesting. So that, that was tax efficient, retirement focused financial planning as a solo. That was like that was the yep and investment management. I wanted to also manage investments, um, which okay. which is you did kind of like live in that world for twenty yeah, years before it, coming exactly. in. So yeah, I, I know I have the benefit of I didn't work directly in retail consumer facing financial services, but I I like to think I mean I know I have such a, a, a deeper broader understanding and appreciation of what really goes into investment management and the products behind it. And one of the investment banks I worked at, they were one of the uh, authorized participants for a large ETF provider. So like I even saw how the sausage was made in creating and redeeming levered ETFs. Um, oh man. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was awesome. And like insurance as well. I, I have a unique understanding of behind the scenes insurance. I understand how general accounts work, how they're invested, how products are priced and created. You know, those are things that people who have only sold insurance don't know. They don't have that appreciation. So I can see these pieces coming together. Like did the corporate world for 20 years really want the freedom and flexibility of the solo, but, you know, made good money in the corporate world. So want to be able to leverage myself up as a solo enough to, to, to still drive good dollars. Always had this interest towards financial planning. So I want to get back to the individual client and spent 20 years in the investment management realm. So I still want to do that. Worked on the retirement transition with my mother, found I really like this sort of taxes and retirement intersection thing that's going on. And so all these pieces, so like just all these pieces start coming together from their various directions to say, okay, I'm actually getting a pretty clear vision of what I think I would want this to look like. Exactly. And one more anecdotal story about the, the disservice of not doing tax planning. I have another relative where I went to a meeting with uh, him and his advisor a handful of years ago. And I, I had reviewed his tax return, which his advisor didn't. And I saw he was just over the threshold for Medicare premium surcharges. Oh. Uh, 
and, no, and I brought it up to like the thousand dollars the other way. Uh, dude, it wasn't even, it was a few hundred bucks. Oh. And, and, um, I brought it up to the advisor and, and a lot of his income was, um, you know, voluntary IRA distribution. He had some annuity, so that was guaranteed, you know, locked mm. in as was social security, but the rest of it was, uh, uh, you know, voluntary discretionary IRA distribution. And I asked his advisor, you know, if you would have taken out, I, I forget, it was like 500 bucks, whatever, 500 bucks less, he wouldn't have had to pay these premium surcharges. And furthermore, at the state level here in New Jersey, that income also knocked him out of the property tax rebate by the Ooh. same few hundred bucks. So I'm like, how did you not know this and bring it up? And their answer with a straight face was, we don't do tax planning. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, this is it. You know, that that solidified it. That That's just such a tremendous disservice. Had you put in a few extra minutes of work and some basic understanding of, of some uh, you know core tax-related retirement angles, you would have saved this guy hundreds of bucks. You know, and more than that, a few thousand bucks because of the yeah, probably a few thousand. Well, because yeah. it depends how big the property tax rebate is, but yeah, yeah, probably a few few thousand bucks for being five hundred dollars on the wrong side of the line. Yeah, so, so that was another codifying event that was like, yeah, it, you have to fold in tax considerations. You don't need to be an absolute tax expert, but stuff like this, if you're truly retirement focused, as these people put themselves out to be, it's like th there's no excuse for not doing this. Or th that was my feeling, at least. So I, I've I've got to ask because just I've I've seen this as a challenge for others that have made the made a similar kind of transition that you did from you know a career in very large financial services firms really can be any large firm but particularly like career in large financial services firms and then going out to being solo on your own so just I'm wondering like did you have any concern or anxiety of like not having a big firm name like on your on your business card when you've always had a big <laughs> reputable firm name on your business card and now you're going to go entirely out on your own with a name that you're just going to make up and say that's your firm <laughs> that's what happens when you launch uh, um, yeah like, were there challenges for you in in taking that kind of leap from big firm environments to now I'm just going to be you know foraging in the wilderness on my own <laughs> I I give a lot of credit to podcasts like yours and XYPN Radio. I soaked those up for years in my sort of diligence and research process prior to leaving the corporate world and starting my thing three years later. I, I knew what to expect. I was I felt very well versed and aware of the angles and pitfalls to watch out for in this process. So um to answer your question, no, I, I was at peace <laughs> with, with with the decision and the risk. And I, I knew I was onto something. You know, I know I'm a sharp guy. I don't I don't like to boast as much as it you know sounds right now I am, but I know I'm a sharp guy. I know I know this stuff. My concern is how do I get this out there in front of people? How do I get myself known? If and when I can do that, I, I think I'll be okay. Um, but going back to again, like XY planning uh, podcast, they always beat into people. Your personal expenses can sink you in this business. Yep. If you don't have a few year runway to make this work, you're gonna have to hang it up. So part of the reason why it took me three plus years to plan this business was also to save uh, a stockpile of cash. And my and my wife also works, thankfully, I'm married, and she was supportive of this. She works, uh, she gets benefits, so that, that was huge. We have two small kids, so you know I needed benefits. And my analysis was, I think it'll take me five years to get this business where I want it to be, which ultimately is 40 to 50 clients as a solo. Give myself five years. I had enough cash saved up that I can have literally zero income for two years, inclusive of business expenses, and still just be burning through cash, you know, not tapping home equity, God forbid, not hitting the kids 529s or whatever. So I, I was comfortable with that. So, and listening so you to you, I know you're like, like two, 
two plus years worth of living expenses and or? business expenses. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and that was all of it. Or then like, and you had even a little bit more cause maybe by year three, like you're making not zero, but not full income. Like, were you- well, that, yeah, exactly. I figured if I'm not making any income by a year and a half, two years in, then something's not working. And let me, yeah, let me revisit. Pro- there are probably but... other challenges. Like it's hard getting going, but it's not literally zero for two years. <laughs> exactly. And, and I got this from listening to you. I think you said somewhere around the 18 month point, maybe two years, you know, you're not full steam necessarily, but you know yep. if this is going to work or not. Correct. Yep. Right. And so that, that, that was one of my, my beacons here was give me a year and a half, two years, by then I'll know. But otherwise I can have zero income for two years and cover personal expenses plus business expenses just from burning through cash. Okay. So you had a a three-year buildup of stockpiling cash to be able to put away two years worth of living plus projected business expenses so that you would have the ramp up period. And you know if it's ramping up along the way, two years of expenses should last you three or four because it's ramping up as you go. Right. Uh, and then ultimately, five years was how long you expected to get it to the 50-ish clients that you wanted to get to to make the business work economically for you. Correct. I mean, I, I, I my expenses are low. I would have been profitable in terms of breaking even with just a few clients. But where I wanted it to be, 40 to 50 clients, I figured, I don't know, five years felt like a fairly conservative guess. Okay. And, and, and so uh, what, yeah. what was the vision of the business by four to five years out? I mean, like, was it a, like just a client count goal? Was it a revenue goal? Was it a, like 40 or 50 clients at X dollars per client? Like how, how did you frame up the end goal of where you wanted it to be? Yes to all of those. And this gets into a, a big part of my DNA and what I do. And part of the reason for my success in, in growing so quickly is I charge a flat annual fee, which does a, a few things, but if nothing else, it makes the revenue projections and long-term planning really, really pretty easy because I know, you know, to the penny what, what my yep. average, uh, you know, revenue is going to be per client. Okay. So yeah, it was, it was a mix of all those things. It was like, okay, 40 to 50 clients. I know what I'm going to be charging per client. Um, I know what that's going to equate to total revenue. I know what my expenses are so I can map out with a pretty good clarity what, you know, what my take home is going to be. And what was the revenue per client that you were envisioning back then when you were getting started? So... <laughs> This, this fee thing's a, a squirrely topic, uh, uh-huh. as you know, <laughs> and there is no right or perfect answer. Um, it took me, I put a lot of thought into triangulating what I thought was a fee, a, a fair fee, mutually fair fee for both clients and myself. Um, part of my 20 years in corporate finance was seeing just how much, how many boatloads of money could be made in investment management. I didn't want to overcharge people. Now, overcharge is a subjective term. I fully agree with that. And I don't want to undercharge either. I think advisors working with someone who's got 50 grand, the advisor's making 500 bucks a year, you're doing a disservice to yourself. Right? You're, you're giving away your services and that ain't right. So I, I was like, let's cut the nonsense. I don't want to undercharge. I don't want to overcharge. Let me just come up with a fee that I think is fair for what I'm going to be doing. Now, I do an all-in you know, flat fee that includes uh, investment management and, and uh, planning, not tied to asset size. But it works well for me and what I do because I have a very clear focus from the get-go of who I wanted to work with, what they look like, um, what their complexity is going to be, what types of things I'll be doing for them, what their pain points are. You know, I'm, I'm more or less, I have this sort of homogenized pool of clients uh, where it's kind of the same process and I'm thinking about the same things every day so I can be efficient. And quick in what I do and anything that any client or prospect that doesn't fit that model, I, I freely tell them right up front, like, no, you're, you're too complex. You're not complex enough. You're not going to get enough value out of me. Um, there's too much going on. I'm not interested. So I, I, I was intentional about who I wanted to work with. 
therefore this flat fee thing makes a lot of sense for the structure of the business. Um, so coming back to how to come up with it, it, it was a few things. One was, let me figure out roughly how many hours I think I'm going to be spending on everyone, not direct face to face, but just, you know, attention behind the scenes, whatever. And, and let me apply some hourly rate. Well, my hourly, hourly rate is, I don't know, I was like, I don't know, 250 to maybe 500 at the high end, you know, and, and I figured let's just assume 20 ish hours per year, uh, times some hourly rate. What does that come up to? Let me also sort of benchmark this against what would the typical 1% of AUM be uh, for my typical clients? What would they pay under 1% of AUM? Let me make sure I'm not too far off from that. And I know I was going to be lean and efficient. And I know I'm going to focus on a niche, if you will, of you know, fairly plain vanilla retirees who are looking for really good tax focused advice. I know I can be efficient and, and sort of pass through savings and stuff. So um, I came up with single folks, $6,000 a year, married folks, 7,200. And that was just sort of subjective. I, you know, I, let me do a little bit of a difference for single versus married. And that's what I came out of the gates with day one. I was also doing pure hourly and one-time plans because I knew having no clients, I had time and I can use some revenue. So uh, I, I did do some straight up hourly engagements. You know, one was three hours, one was five. I did about a dozen different one-time financial plans, but my real focus was I ultimately wanted to get to 40 or 50 ongoing clients along the way. I would sort of, uh, you know, jettison off the hourly and one-time plan stuff, which I did. So that was my pricing, 6,000 for single, 72 for married. And so if you can get that to 40 or 50 clients, you're, you're, you're projecting out somewhere in the like high 200s to low 300s of gross revenue was sort of the original business projection? C correct. 300-ish gross. My expenses now, I mean, then we're even less. My expenses about 20 grand a year. Now it's like 30 a year inclusive of an office I have. Um, so yeah, I was like, that's plenty enough, good enough money for me, you know? So i just curious to hear a little bit more on that. Like what what is in your expense bucket at this point that, that adds, I guess that, that, that adds up to 30K a year? What's in there? So I was working from home at a basement office. Um, that cost me nothing. But as the business started to grow, I got clients. And for sanity's sake, I needed to get out of the house because of COVID. You know, my wife was home, my kids were home, and I love them dearly, but I just, I needed some space. So uh, 10,000 bucks a year between rent, internet, uh, for a little office space I have. And I don't see clients. I'm, I'm basically entirely virtual. I have two clients in New Jersey. Everyone else is scattered throughout the country. Uh, so well, 10,000 for my office. is not necessarily like, here's where we're going to come meet with clients office space. It's just, uh, here's a place I can work that's not in my house where my kids are. 100% right. Yep. So, yep. so is that like, uh, is that a shared office space? Is that just uh, you found a relatively inexpensive rent, uh, like office rental setup? Like just what's what kind of space did you go get for for ten k a year? Yeah, the latter. It's um, it's a small, quaint little downtown area. It's an old building that used to be a bank that has since been retrofit. So the ground floors retail, the top two floors are individual little office suites ranging from you know one hundred and fifty to four hundred square feet. Um, I have one of those, so it's my own private room. Uh, and that's it. I have a TV, a refrigerator, a desk, a small little conference table. Um, and then there's a shared bathroom. There's a shared mailbox area. There, there's no kitchen area or anything. So okay. it's pretty It's pretty bare bones. But again, it's, it's for what I need. I'm not seeing clients. I just right. need to get out of the house. It's, it's perfect. Okay. So, so that's about what, 10 grand. And then so what else is in your expense bucket? The largest expense is my membership to XY Planning Network, to be honest. Um <laughs> Which, which is worth it. I mean, that's 5,500 bucks a year, roughly. I'm rounding. Um, and then so also- that's, that's tech 
tech stuff, compliance, the other things that get packaged in the in the XYPN? Um, no, that that's just the monthly XY membership separately. Okay. I mean, some of the tech's included, right? So Wealthbox is included. My my CRM is Wealthbox. I, I pay the extra twelve bucks a month for the email uh, edition, but I also use eMoney for financial planning. That's twenty seven hundred bucks a year. I use Capitect through uh, uh, for performance reporting and billing. That's another fourteen a year. Just going down the list here. I mean, my web hosting, twenty over ten, is eleven hundred bucks a year, uh, and all the other random office stuff. I mean, Microsoft Office, McAfee, PDF, uh, email hosting, text archiving, uh, Zoom, QuickBooks, Schedule Once. I use Precise FP, Constant okay. Contact is my email. I have a couple of professional subscriptions: Wall Street Journal, Investment News, my CFP and RICP designation fees, my E and O insurance, you know, two grand a year. So, uh, and all my regulatory, you know, my annual filings. I'm registered in a few states. That's another twelve hundred so, a year. So it sounds it's kind of like it. It's ten grand for office space. It's a little over five grand for XYPN, and then the remaining fifteen is just this like long tail of yep. a couple hundred here, a thousand there, a couple hundred here, a thousand there for just that that smattering of. All, all the different tech tools, subscriptions, ENO, maintain my designations, like just all that, all that miscellaneous stuff that just correct adds adds up to another another ten to fifteen of miscellaneous. Yep, and so those are my fixed costs, about thirty grand inclusive of office. I've also started traveling now that the pandemic's largely behind us, so. I, I started doing laps around the country to go go visit clients. Um, I've done a few trips so far, so you know that's another handful of thousand bucks a year for flights and hotels and rental cars and whatever and, and dinners with clients. That's interesting, but, but I mean that that means the core model as originally projected was essentially like fifty clients, six grand a client, three hundred thousand gross revenue, ninety percent profit margin was the yeah, was the original and, model, give give or give or take a few points. Dead on. That was the original model. And I actually did increase fees twice along the way, but I did not increase fees for existing clients. So anyone who's paying that six and seventy two hundred, they're still paying that. But what I found was once I started getting clients, and we can circle this back to Facebook group, but once I started getting clients in July of 2020, so this was uh nine months into my 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 business, that was a f- my first non-family and friend client was nine months later. Um, once they started coming, they, they were coming fast and furious. And so I was onboarding three to four clients a month and no one was pushing back about fees. I was like, I, I must not be charging enough. So I upped it to 7,200 single and 8,400 married. A few months went by. I was still onboarding three or four a month with, with barely a blink about fees. So I upped it again to 8,400 single, 9,600 married. And that's where the market sort of said, okay, you're at the right point. Um, Meaning now you started getting a few people saying like, Andy sounds like a pretty nice service, but mm, that's a little expensive for me. And they'd say no. Um, and, not or, even not, not even so blunt like that. Just the, the flow of prospect calls slowed down. You know, the flow of inbound inquiries slowed down to okay. a manageable level. <laughs> Um, the ones that did still have calls with me, a decent chunk ultimately signed up and, and didn't beef about the fee. So frankly, I, I mean, I, I, I can raise the fee even more, I think, if I were to start taking on new clients. But I, I don't know. I'm happy with where I'm at. It feels right. Yeah. Uh, I know what goes into this. I know the hours I put in and, and I'm not I don't feel I'm undercharging at all. So anyway, so now some of my clients, you know, decent chunk are paying upwards of eight or nine thousand a year. Um, so it makes the profit margin even better because my expenses stay the same, honestly. Right. But my, you know, my total revenue has gone up. So I do want to get in in a moment to just like what on earth you did to get that kind of client flow 
uh, uh, going. But before that, I, I want to understand just a little bit more of the lead up to to the launch because you had. As you said, there was a basically like a three-year period. 2016, you start listening to XYPN radio. The light bulb goes off. Like your mother does her retirement transition. All these things are coming together. They're like, okay, I think I see. I want this advisor thing. Except everybody's saying you need to build up a good amount of savings. So you you took yep. three years to build up two years worth of, of living expenses. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, what else were you doing in that three-year period to try to build up and prepare? Prepare for the launch. Was there other stuff you were you were doing to try to give yourself a a, a good launch when you made the transition? Yeah, definitely. I, I was an absolute sponge, soaking up as much as I could about technical knowledge and uh, business and just sort of you know regulatory environment type stuff. So I went about this in a few ways. Um, started getting the formal education and, and credentials. I started with the retirement income certified professional designation. Um, you know, that was a few a few uh, modules and ultimately got the exam. And sure enough, you know, fell in love with the content as I was going through it. And that was sort of my, my non-committal way to see. I didn't want to go full steam into the CFP curriculum. I was like, let me start with RICP, which is a little less involved, um, you know, not as time consuming, easier to get the designation because as, as long as you have basically any job, you know, that counts as work experience for that. So I started with that. So that that was your like toe in the water. I mean, that's maybe a little light to put it because there's a lot of stuff in the RICP, but like toe in the water, less intensive of a commitment than going full steam into the CFP marks. Let's see if I actually like nerding out on this stuff when I actually get into the curriculum. Uh, Right. And it is a retirement designation when I want to specialize in retirement. So like this is well aligned for where I'm going if 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 it's all working that's that's spot on i was like if i don't like this then who knows maybe i i, I re- revisit this whole plan but sure enough I, I loved every step of it i uh pounded my way through the ricp in like i don't know it was like three months i think a little less um and i was like yeah this is it you know laser focus let's do it so next after that was cfp so signed up for the uh, american college of financial service um education curriculum and, and why <laughs> why the American College? Is it just you were already there from RACP, so I'm just going to hang out? That's exactly it. I, I'm comfortable with their you know their portal, their interface. I liked the self paced thing. I, I liked the way their content was written, whatever. So I was like, let me just do that. And, and frankly, I, I, I learned enough from listening to you know podcasts and you and whatever that. Uh, CFP curriculum is more or less the same everywhere. I mean, slight twists on it, but it really doesn't matter where you go. Yeah. Um, so I did no, what was no offense to a lot of wonderful programs out there and, and <laughs> yeah. all that, but I yeah, like uh I, I they're, mean they're, li- jo- they're literally white labeled. It's like Dalton and Green, you know, they they brand yeah. themselves at multiple universities and whatever. So yeah, I you know, as as well, I, I know there's a lot of folks out there that sort of debate in general, even when you get into your work career, what the relevance of your like your alma mater is like you know, I worked really hard to get in that school. Not a lot of people ask me what school I went to after I finished, unless you go to a, a very small sliver of schools yep. at, a, at, a, at a certain level where the where the names still carry weight. But uh, arguably, there's even less of that in the CFP environment. Like a lot of employers will ask if you see have your CFP marks. No one asks where you got it. No, it doesn't. It, it just doesn't, doesn't matter. <laughs> it just doesn't come up. So next was CFP, uh, signed up for the education, yeah, American college, did that program soup the nuts. And I think five months, including the capstone. Wow. Um, like that working is hardcore. Yeah. I was, I'm, I'm a bit of a freak. I, I don't do well with idle hands. And so, um, 
I constantly need to be doing something. And I made really good use of all my time sitting on trains and subways commuting to and from work. Oh, so, so like the, the hour and a half of commute time for podcasts became an hour and a half of commute time studying. for, yeah, yeah. for, for studying. And well, yeah, I guess if, if you really get an hour and a half a day, you can plow through a lot of it quickly. I guess that's the, yeah. that's the one virtue of the New York style commuting. Cause it's, it's trains that you can read and study on. Whereas most other right. metropolitan areas, it's that's cars you've got to drive yeah. and you can't read. So nice, nice indirect shout out through. for New York city. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, commute time and nights and weekends, I put a lot of time in to, to get this done and absolutely loved it. It was just soaking it all up. Uh, next after that was the IRS enrolled agent. Um, I did, there, there is no formal curriculum for that, but I found something from the income tax school.com, which is in effect, the informal curriculum that was immensely valuable. They have you go through dozens of mock tax returns, learned, learned really good about taxes that way. What was the, what was the site or platform? Where did you go for it? It's the income tax school.com super hokey name. Um, Hey, it works. Uh, yeah, I'm but, I'm I'm clearly a fan of uh you know just naming naming businesses for what, it is. what they yeah. are right we we call it new planner recruiting for a reason so um hey I I love it <laughs> the income tax school you know exactly yeah. what you're gonna get and and I thought that sounded cheesy I, I looked into getting a master's of taxation I was like there's no way I can go to this you know income tax school thing and get a get a decent education about taxes so I looked into masters. And it, it was just grossly overkill. Like, you know, there's corporate taxation, there's yep. policies and procedures about running a tax firm. There's, uh, you know, auditing. I was like, I don't want to do that. That's not yep. as, what I want to do. As someone that got a master's in tax, I at least tried to find a program that had more elective flexibility so that I could get get stuff that is more directly relevant. Yeah. But yeah, I like I I do value the masters in tax I got, but e- easily easily 30 to 40% of that program was completely irrelevant. Like I had right. courses in tax audit, I had courses in international taxation. So it was really cool for a while when like uh corporate inversions to Ireland was a thing cuz I actually knew exactly mm-hmm. how they worked from my masters degree, but like aside from like nerdy tax cocktail chatter, um, like <laughs> completely useless. Then there was some on the individual and small business taxation side that was helpful, but that's relevant. Yeah, yeah, it was it was not the most targeted. Even trying to find a program that was relatively targeted. Yep. So after some googling and researching, I found what looked to be the most relevant and applicable program for what I was trying to learn was again the IncomeTaxSchool.com. They had this package called Chartered Tax Professional. Um, which is just some made up marketing fluff designation that's, you know, unique to them. But the point is it had these underlying modules and classes that, that I took that were all self-paced, all do mock tax returns. And it was, it was awesome, man. The amount of stuff I learned about taxes and tax returns. And what I found was, uh, I wanted to learn tax planning, right? And, and through this process, I realized you can't really learn tax planning. Tax planning is nothing more than being able to visualize how actions or inactions will manifest themselves on tax returns. Once you start thinking and, and seeing in terms of that, that's tax planning. Now you know what to do or what not to do because you know how it's going to impact someone's taxes. Um, and that's exactly what I got out of this program. And intentionally, they line up their curriculum to, to really parallel with the three uh, bodies of knowledge and three exams that the IRS enrolled agent exams are. So they were sort of like the informal prep for that. So, um, so the so income tax school has its own tax designation. It lines up with the EA. You yep. went through the tax designation program, but not actually to use their letters, just to be able to prepare for the EA. And yes. then you went and sat for the EA. Do you even use the 
income tax schools designation that you got along with it? No, you had to pay like 50 bucks or so. It, it's pointless. Oh, it, it's, no one's ever heard of it. You know, it, it's their own proprietary thing. Um, so literally like went through the designation to get the crossover education for the EA and yes. then ditched the designation. But like, thanks for the education and went and passed your EA and now you use your enrolled agent. Exactly. No, okay. the, the designation's pointless in my opinion. I mean, no disrespect to income tax school, but let's call it what it is. I mean, they, they made that up just as sort of a marketing ploy to sell this program, which uh, the program is awesome. I'm not saying it's not, but the designation yeah. is, is is useless. So, I guess, so uh, in my, in my advice opinion. back to them, like you don't need the you don't need the program. Like literally, just say you're teaching for the EA. It's okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll exactly. still pay you. Right. Yep. <laughs> okay. Um, so did that uh, pass the EA exams one two three? Also, I knew this would be overkill, but also started doing the CFA. Um, that that was sort of like the you know in the corporate investment banking world that that's the pinnacle of uh, ego stroke of, you know, I've, I've made it is if you have that designation and I started doing that and and I knew it was for the wrong reasons. I I know how complicated and time intensive it is. I know it puts the CFP to shame in terms of difficulty. Um, but anyway, so I started doing that. I passed level one. I got most of the way through studying for level two begrudgingly because I'm like, I don't need this. I don't need this. And the last straw for me was after doing the part about like convertible bond arbitrage calculations and calculating the fundedness of a company's pension plan. I'm like, no, forget this. this. This is not what I want to do. This is a waste of my time. Let me put more focus on planning out the business, listening more to business best practices, stuff like that. And sure enough, that's what I did. So uh, I have CFA level one charter, um, uh, whatever you call it, holder. And I, I'm not going to bother going back for two or three. So you're doing all these designations while you're still working in the finance world at the at the prior job. Like, did the RICP, did the CFP, did the EA? I guess practically speaking, because your prior work was all financial services industry, even in investment management related, like you checked the experience box as well. So as soon as you got CFP education exam done, like you were able to go get the marks. Oh, um, good point. No, so. <sighs> One of my jobs in my corporate world was prime brokerage, which is, you know, lending against hedge funds or mutual funds portfolio of assets. Okay. Um, part some of the clients we had were multi-billion, you know, high net worth family offices. So I CFP board gave me credit for that roughly year and a half or whatever it was of um, prime brokerage experience. The rest of my experience did not apply. But oh, interesting. I, I'm also an adjunct professor of finance at Rutgers. And so I got some hours from teaching and all said and done, I was 498 hours short of the experience requirement. And guess what? I mentioned I went to the FPA residency. Uh, Coincidentally, that's 500 hours worth of experience if you go to that thing. Nice. So, man, if I would have been like 501 hours short, that would have sucked. I know. um, I know. Like (laughs) someone like just make me an intern uh, for a day. I just. Yeah, something. And then send the letter to the CFP board that says, I worked for you for a day. Give me That's all I need. <laughs> um, but Interesting. No, so, that, so, but- so FPA residency then put you over the line with the combination of partial job experience that counted and partial teaching time that counted. That put me two hours over the 3,000, I think it was 3,000 hour uh, requirement. Yep. Okay. So I was able to use the marks prior to even leaving my old world, but I didn't tell anyone I was doing this because they, they didn't know I was leaving. I couldn't make it public that I was getting these designations that don't apply right. to what I was doing. Right. So I was sort of like itching, like, man, I got the RSEP. Now I got the CFP. Now I got the EA, but I can't tell anyone about it. Um, so yeah, so I got all those out of the way. 
And so designations were in hand. Um, that, that's what I did with a lot of my three years leading up to my launch. The rest of my time was uh, listening to podcasts like yours and XYP and radio and just reading and learning and listening to as much as I possibly could about how to structure a business, things to look out for, uh, you know, regulatory things, pricing, service model, absolutely everything. I was, I was a sponge. So um, soaking up all this stuff during the course of the three years, ultimately, I, you know, I honed my business plan of what exactly I wanted my business to look like. And I had a crystal clear vision what I ultimately wanted it to get to. Again, assume it would be five years. Uh, so that was it. The only thing I didn't know was how to find clients once I once I went live. So let's go there. All right. So you know, you'd said at the beginning, like the thing that drove you away the, from the financial advisor world in the first place that you know basically took twenty years to come back to was uh, I'm not a salesperson. <laughs> like I'm, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to be in a sales world doing sales things. And you know, granted, you know, charging charging fees for advice is a very different kind of environment than selling insurance products or investment products, but like, there is a marketing and sales place. Like you, you have to convince people to pay you money for your services. Yeah. Like you're selling yourself and not a product. Like you, there is still a sales function and there is still a like prospecting or some way that are marketing some way that I make the phone ring. So as the like self-identified, not salesperson who then has to go and sell themselves and get all their clients, like what was the, what was the launch plan in terms of like, actually getting clients? Yeah. Things that I genuinely believe in, I'd be more comfortable, quote unquote, selling. And now there's not many of such things. Like I, I can't just go sell cars or replacement windows or aluminum siding. Like they're, they're whatever. There's a few products I genuinely love. I won't name them, but there's a few, you know, consumer electronics. I'm big into woodworking. There's a few woodworking products that I absolutely genuinely love. And, and myself, um, you know, I, I'm confident in what I know. I, I know, or I knew my business was different and unique and, and especially the tax angle. And I know I'm a sharp guy and I know I can explain well. I, I knew there'd be value in this. So I was confident in that at least. But having to work a room, having to pat backs, you know, kiss babies and whatever, that, that's, that's just not me. So I was like, I don't really know what I'm going to do. So my, my initial plan, again, went live November 1st, 2019 from, from True Nothing, was the centers of influence thing. I started making friends with local accountants and estate planning attorneys. Um, because like just... Because that's the what the industry that's what supposed to do. Had, like yeah. you're supposed to do. Okay, so yeah, you know, in, industry says go find COIs. So you went and started finding centers of influence. Yep, yeah. and again, shout out to you and other podcasts. You made it very clear that a lot of this advisor marketing business development is throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. And different things work for different people. So I, I tried a bunch of things. I didn't know what was going to work for me. One was centers of influence that I tried. One was doing local library seminars, you know, free seminars about social security. And so you tried some of that as well. Things. Tried some of that. Um, I also did have uh, social media stuff. You know, I started posting, made some of my own articles, started sharing other articles, started trying to just like write engaging questions through LinkedIn, through Twitter, through a Facebook business page. Um, all of those really had no immediate success and not, not that they, they typically do, but, you know, nothing was clicking. I was on XY Planning Network, Find an Advisor. I was on FPA, Find an Advisor, NAPFA, Find an Advisor, and CFP, Find an Advisor. You know, I got a f maybe uh, three or four inbound inquiries from them during those first handful of months. Were, nothing, were some more successful than others for you? No, two of them were just flat out not good fits. Um, meaning that, you know, they, they, they wanted just sort of like two hours of advice or something, or one person had like $100,000. And I was like, yeah, it's no. Um, and... 
so I tried all those things. Nothing's really clicking. The biggest flop, and this is sort of fun looking back at it, and I knew this would be a gamble. I'm big into woodworking, like I said, and there's this national woodworking expo that tours the country. And every year it comes to my area because you know New York area is pretty big. And I, I've gone for the last like 15, 20 years as a participant. And it's all tool manufacturers and like local woodworking guilds and workshops of how to build cabinets and stuff. I was like, most woodworkers are over 50. Um, uh-huh. I like woodworking, right? Uh, we, we have this common affinity. There's zero, I know from experience, there's zero you know, other financial advisors trying to go wangle clients there. So I was like, let me buy a booth, set up a table. I know it's a long shot, but I, you know what I have that the random run-of-the-mill wirehouse advisor doesn't is this natural affinity for woodworking. And my company name is Tenon Financial. Tenon is a woodworking term. Oh, and even okay. in the logo, even the logo, there's a Tenon, which is a type of a woodworking joint. So I'm like, this is brilliant, I think. Anyone who sees it is going to immediately resonate and going to want to talk to me and ask about the sign. <laughs> and my wife was like, this is dumb. It's not going to work. I was like, eh, might not. But if it does, it's going to be wildly successful or it's going to be a tremendous flop. So I paid 3000 bucks to get a table, to buy signage. You know, I had a, a, a broad computer. I had this live e-money presentation I was going to show people. And it was a complete bomb. Absolute bomb. Oh, I still <laughs> wanted it to work. I still wanted uh, it to work. Man. Now, part of it, I'm just making excuses, but but this was the weekend before COVID happened. So the crowd was fairly thin because there was already rumblings about, you know, people staying inside and whatever. The last thing you want to do is be shaking hands and, you know, talking to people all day. But... <laughs> But no, I, I, that's not it. I, it just it sucked. I sucked because um, I'm not a room worker. Right. Uh, I, I thought the woodworking thing would be this natural, fluid conversation, but nobody cared. I, I had maybe I gave out three business cards, I think, the whole weekend. I talked to maybe five or six people. So anyway, th- that, that was like my Hail Mary is like this could be a tremendous flop or sex, successful. And it just it stunk. Um but then, so that, like I said, that was a weekend before COVID. That was March 6th or 7th of 2020. And then everything stopped. Uh, no more centers of influence lunches, no more library presentations, no more ill-fated uh, woodworking expos. So I was home and I was like, man, you know, th- this is a big crimp. Now what am I going to do? Um, so that was a setback, I thought. And I was like, okay, everyone's going through it. This isn't unique to me. Let me just ride it out. I'm only, you know, four months into this thing. I got plenty of runway still. Let's see what happens. And and were were any clients coming yet from the initial stuff that you'd been doing Nothing. before COVID shut it down? No. Other than, like I said, three or four inbound inquiries, uh, one from XY, the rest from NAPFA, that was it. And none of those okay. panned out. So I did have uh, my mom, my in-laws, my aunt and uncle, and a former former coworker sign up, you know, in the first month or two. But that was it. It was crickets. Um, okay. Pandemic so happened. Four, four, world stopped. Four months out. All this marketing activity, like COIs, seminars, and three grand on the woodworking event. Zero clients outside of friends and family. Correct. And then COVID hits and the world shuts down. Yep. I'm like, well, good thing I still have another year and a half of expenses. <laughs> yep. So um, good reminder, like. Helps helps to have built the savings. It means at least you like you have a good uh, a good twelve more months before you really need to start panicking. You don't have to panic yet. <laughs> yep. And I should say I, I did have some side hustles, which I was teaching at a, a course at Rutgers that spring of 2020. And that wasn't a lot. I mean, that was under ten thousand bucks in total pay. Um, and I started doing tax returns. I, I mean, I only did like a dozen returns that year, so that wasn't massive money either. But nonetheless, I had something coming in. Okay. Um, but but yeah, the, the advisory business was my focus, and it just you know it hit a brick wall when COVID happened. So it's like, all right, now what? 
um, I started a Facebook group <laughs> in April of 2020. And I, the reason why I waited, I wanted to start sooner, but the archiving platform I was using was not yet able to archive Facebook groups. They can only archive business pages. And I wanted to make sure I do everything on the up and up from a compliance perspective. So uh, April so 1st. What- what were you using or what? Uh, it was it was Message Watcher at the time, which was, okay. you know, sub- subsidized through XY planning. I, I since switched to XY archive through XY planning. Okay. And I got a message from, uh, you know, the guy who runs Message Watcher. I think it was like February or March. He's like, just so you know, we're going to start a beta testing of Facebook group archiving April 1st. I was like, sign me up. Um, so sure enough, I was one of their first users of Facebook group archiving, went live April 1st, launched my group April 1st. Uh, and the rest is history. So I, I guess just take us further into what, like what the Facebook group is, or I guess just even what the vision was. It sounds like you, you already knew you wanted to do a Facebook group, at least in the, in the broader category of we're throwing spaghetti at the wall, right? When we get started. So like, you know, things I can try in my first couple of months to see what works for me. COI marketing, local seminars, um, you know, find an advisor listings, uh, you know, go back to my old natural market of woodworkers and this Facebook thing. So I get it. Like it was one of the, one of the things on the list, but like, what was the, what was the vision or the plan or the idea? Like, what were you planning on doing with it? Particularly since, as you noted, this wasn't just, I'm going to make a Facebook page and post things. This was, I want to make a Facebook group. Yeah. So, so Facebook pages are nothing more than a glorified contact us card. And I knew that, but I also know you sort of have, have to have one just in case people look, they want to be able to see you there. So I wasn't surprised my Facebook business page wasn't really doing anything because it's kind of a unilateral one-way means of communication. Whereas a group, and I knew this from the XY Planning Facebook group, like it's a, it's a, uh, you know, multilateral, multi-contributor community, right? It's, it's not just XY post stuff and people read, right? It's member driven. So I was like, let, let me try to build and foster a sense of community. Uh, I want it to be educational. I want it to be called taxes in retire taxes in retirement, not taxes and retirement. And okay. the reason why was there were already multiple generalist retirement planning groups out there. Some are good, some are eh. I knew my my differentiator in my business was the the tax focused part of it, which a lot of advisors don't do. You know, retirement planners are a dime a dozen. Those with really legit tax knowledge that incorporate that tax knowledge are are much harder to find. And I knew that was me. So let me pitch my tent to the Facebook group world as the guy who knows about taxes and retirement. Hence the name taxes and retirement was a group name. So I thought that was, you know, pat myself on the back. I thought that was a good name to try to find people. If they're searching for tax and retirement stuff in Facebook, this group should be the first one that comes up. And my I, intention I guess there's was, a part of me that just wonders, although I'm, I'm sure you're going to get more into it soon, but like, are people literally searching for taxes and retirement on Facebook? Yes. Yes. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Okay. Um, my, my intention for the group was, I, I know, I know my stuff. I know I can communicate it well because I, I, you know, educating is passionate about it. I, I enjoy it. I've, I've been told by students and colleagues that I can you know, teach and explain well. So let me make a community where I'm just going to give away buckets of answers and knowledge. And, and I modeled it after this podcast called The Retirement and IRA Show, which is hosted by Jim Saulnier and Chris Stein out of Fort Collins, Colorado. This was one of the podcasts I listened to in my years leading up to this, where the education and quality and depth of what they discussed was absolutely mind-blowing, like as good or better 
than what I learned in the RICP curriculum. They're retirement focused, you know, tax efficient advisors. And I was like, dude, they should be charging for this stuff. It's that good. Um, but they just give it away. Like genuine, this guy, Jim, genuine, genuinely loves educating, teaching, just giving away knowledge. I was like, that's me. It sounds like me. So I wanted to do that, but in a Facebook group setting, whereas his was podcast format. Um, and what, like why, like why uh, Facebook setting and not podcasts? Be because it's more uh, engaging. Podcast is still one way. He records it. He releases it. People listen. That's it, right? Okay. There's no, there's no interactivity. Facebook group, you can get access to me basically live, right? If I'm at my computer, I'll respond. Or if not, I'll respond, you know, within an hour or something. So much more engaged, much more sense of community with a, with a group like that as opposed to a podcast. Okay. Um, the intention was answer questions, you know, uh, questions about IRAs, Roth IRAs, pensions, social security, annuities, whatever. Bring it. I'll answer. And I had nothing else to do, right? Because it was COVID. I was home. Um, I have, I, I, I have I no clients have yet and I basically can't leave my house. So I've got exactly. a lot of room here. Yep. I mean, I was doing some tax returns. I was teaching at Rutgers, but that was virtual at that point. So, I mean, I was home. I had nothing else to do. Right. So I put all my time and energy here, um, sharing articles, writing content, you know, asking questions, answering questions. Yeah. So just help me understand like how this just, I mean, how this gets going when you, when you started, I mean, I get the, like, I'm going to post, you know, I'm going to post interesting retirement articles into the community. And then when they ask questions, I'm going to answer them. Like that presumes someone's there. Yeah. (laughs) No, great point. And you need Um, people to be there. It's like, how does this literally get going and off the ground? I'm not a social media expert nor do I pretend to be. And I definitely don't claim to have it all figured out. But, but what I figured was there's math and logic behind these algorithms. And Facebook's algorithm probably wants to see some sort of critical mass in a, in a new group early on. Otherwise, you're just going to get dogged in its you know search findings. Right. So I, I was a member of a few other retirement groups, like you know retired folks, not advisor groups. <laughs> and I was a member of a few professional groups like XY, like FPA, like a couple of different tax preparer groups. And I just uh, kind of shamelessly plugged it in those groups. But it wasn't just like, please come follow and join this group. It was, so for example, for the XY group and FPA group, the pitch was, hey, you all know planning. You may not know tax planning well. Come join this group. The value add to you and your clients is you can learn about you know how to do proper tax planning to complement your financial planning. And vice versa for the tax preparer groups I was in. Like you all know how to do taxes. You don't know much about planning. Come join this group. You can learn more about you know integrating financial planning into what you do. So you went to uh, like you went to other groups to invite them to join your group. Yes, and they were those other groups were mostly other professionals. It wasn't you know going to be clients. But I figured let me at least get some some followers to the group so the algorithm picks up on it. Um, but I did also in other sort of consumer facing groups where people just randomly chat about retirement. I was already active in there as a participant. People would ask questions, and I would give these elaborate, well written answers about you know tax things, IRA things, whatever. And so anytime people in those groups ask questions, I would answer their question and then say, oh, by the way, if you're interested, I just started a group where this is you know, exactly what we talk about. Come join. And I kept doing that. Um, not, not too in your face salesy, but you know, genuinely first answer their question, give value, then say, by the way, I have this group if you're interested. And so in the first week, I got maybe 400 members, most of which were from XY, FPA, and the two tax repair groups. But I thought that was good enough pop that hopefully Facebook liked it. And I was getting a you know, steady trickling of 
I don't know, a few people a day from those other sort of consumer facing retirement groups joining. And I don't know what to expect. This was April 2020. My, my random guess was it'd be cool if I got a thousand members by the end of 2020. Um, long story short, the, the group just took off pretty quickly. I hit a thousand members by July and I don't even know what it hit by, by the end of 2020. But at this point, it's like 31, 32,000 people and growing by a few hundred a week wow. consistently. Um, so along the way, it was just lots of time. I, I would be super fast to answer people's questions with very detailed answers. I would never cross the line into giving specific advice. It was stuff about like interpreting Roth distribution rules and, you know, what is asset location, how is social security tax, how are annuities tax, stuff like that. And what I found was, um, I got a lot of responses from people like, wow, my advisor didn't even know that, or you answered this faster than my advisor did. And for free, by the way. Um, and I was like, I might be onto something with this. And, so is and, there some point where you say like, well, you know, funny thing, I'm an advisor too. Like I can actually no, do this for you. Interesting you say that. I have such this visceral anti-knee jerk reaction to being salesy. I try to avoid at all costs saying, oh, by the way, you know, join my newsletter or this is what I do. Reach out for a call. I never want to do that. Um, I, I have no form of lead capture. I've never asked for names or emails or phone numbers from anyone in this group. I rarely, if ever, even made it known that, that I uh, do this as a business, let alone try to pitch people to come reach out to me. And that, that was intentional, partly because I hate it. And, and I cringe at the thought of that selling, even though I know my stuff is good. Um, but I, I thought, let me just look like Jim Saulnier in that retirement IRA podcast, let me just uh, evidence what I know, who I am, my approach towards stuff, j just give it away, right? And like you said, at some point, 99% of the people aren't going to hire you. They're just there consume free content. It's the 1% that eventually will take it upon themselves and be like, ooh, okay, I I'd like more. And they'll, they'll then, when they're ready, reach out to you for you know to consider a paid engagement. And that's exactly what happened. Without me ever selling or lead funneling, July of 2020, People started reaching out and, and, and finding my finding my business site and setting up calls, and uh, it just snowballed from there. So I'm struck by just how like how this grew and evolved for you. So I want to make sure I follow the flows. Like you know, created the group. Just you know, it's an empty shell. Like we're here to talk yep. about tax and retirement. I hope someone shows up and <laughs> talks about exactly. it with me. So then you're involved in some other Facebook groups. XYPN yes. community advisor groups, some tax groups that you're in and mentioned to them, hey, I'm starting this uh, Facebook group on uh, uh, on taxes and retirement. You know, if you're interested, come check it out. A, a, a bunch of people did. So a couple hundred advisor, yep. mostly advisors at least showed up to see what was going on. Yep. At that point, just you've got an interesting name. There's a couple hundred people. I guess you start sharing articles. A couple people start commenting. So there's yes. some activity. And now Facebook, just the Facebook algorithm, someone searching for taxes and retirement, you start showing up. A few people just start get, getting to the group because Facebook makes you findable. Yep. And then just active engagement into the group, the more activity, the more people get prompted in the algorithm, the more people show up and it just starts compounding on itself. I, I believe so. I mean, I, I've never really dug into metrics or behind the scenes stats, but yes, definitely, you know, some of the membership questions people have to answer when they request to join is how'd you find the group? And they'll either say search for it or Facebook recommended it. Like, you know, Facebook has a bar of like groups you may like. So yeah, it, it bubbled up in, in people's views, but a lot of it was also people recommending the group within other groups that were in. So you know, there's, uh, I don't know, a group for federal employees, you know, a TSP group. There's a group for retired American Airlines employees. Like I've gotten lots of people 
refer my group within there because, you know, the referrer found something helpful and valuable in my group and decided it's worth making their peers know about it. And so that's where a lot of the group came from as well, you know, organic referrals from other folks. Um, so it's a whole, it's a whole combination of things. And so I've got to ask, like, when when the long term vision for this is this is about uh, you know this is about building building your brand and getting known amongst consumers so that you can get clients. Were there concerns that you started this out by inviting other advisors who are quote unquote competition for the consumers you're eventually hoping to engage with in this group? Um, not really. I, I definitely have, and, and I learned this from you, the abundance mentality. That there's enough people out there who want and need advisory services. The trick is just getting in front of them and differentiating yourself. What, what I what I don't like, and and what I put the kibosh on quickly, is I make that clear in the group rules: no soliciting your own stuff, no self promoting your own content, no pitching products or people, uh, no soliciting in the group or through direct messages offline. Uh, if I ever see that, I quickly boot the people out. Um, and the, the group's pretty good. Members do self-report to me like, hey, you know, this joker just direct messaged me trying to sell me an index universal life policy. You know, I'll find the person and delete them. Interesting. And so so I guess the sort of the effect at that point is, uh, you know, if you're not allowed to solicit, the only way you really get seen and noticed in the group is you have to literally be active enough in engaging yes. and answering questions. Exactly that people notice you. And so almost by definition, like the, the active contributors are going to, you know, potentially win some business and get some prospective clients. The rest will not. And practically speaking, a lot of advisors don't necessarily have time to do that. When you were in the early days of your business, you had a whole lot of time to do that. Yeah. So you were just really going to end out being the primary one who was engaging in the group the way it would take to generate business anyways. Exactly. There are some other advisors that are super active, super helpful contributors, really know their stuff. And, and I'm appreciative for them. They, they have gotten some business out of it. Again, not direct in your face solicitations, but they've proven they know their stuff. They're proven that they're there to add right. value, not just skim off uh, you know, free free prospects from this silver platter of carefully crafted, well-targeted you know, retirees seeking financial help. Um, I'm, you know, I'm very cognizant of that. I don't want people to sell. I'm aware I, I created, uh, in effect, like a, this silver platter gold mine of, of prospects that I'm really sensitive about. I don't want people selling. I've had multiple businesses and, and webinar providers and services ask me to do affiliate marketing in the group. And, and I said, no, you know, I don't want to do it. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, even though I realized I could have made a lot of money out of it. Yeah. It's just not what I'm out for with this group. You make it sound so easy, right? Like, just make make a group on your thing. Yeah. Just, just I mean, I put it in air quotes. Like, just engage and be involved there. And I get it. Like, that is time consuming. It takes a lot. Not everybody's naturally wired that way in the first place. Which again is you know why as as you noted earlier, like just different marketing strategies work for different folks because it just aligns better or worse to our natural style. Yeah, and and other other thing that really poured fuel on this fire was I started doing weekly live videos within the group, you know, broadcast within the group, streamed within the group in June of 2020, every Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern. And each week I talk about a specific topic in depth. That that's when um, I think things really blew up in a good way because that, that the element of video, it's one thing to like read something I wrote, right? You can, you can know from that what my technical knowledge is and how I write and sort of visualize what I sound like. But when you see someone in video, you really get to know them, their, their mannerisms, their voice, like, uh, you know, what I, and I, I do live Q and A's on the spot where if I don't know something, you know, I'm upfront about it. 
and I think that just really, really opened up um, people getting to know me and uh, further sort of cementing me as their go-to for all this stuff, such as if and when they did want to consider paid engagement, I, I was the first one they thought of. And a lot of the sales process was done. Like I didn't need to court them. Because well, they already know like just how so you engage, how you interact, how you communicate. Right. It just literally comes down to, I like how Andy talks and explains things. I would just like to have him do that for me one-on-one. <laughs> Exactly. And even what I look like, I, I wear t-shirts, right? And this is partly because of the pandemic. Um, I, I shave once a week. So depending what point in the week you catch me, I'm a little scruffy. I wear t-shirts and shorts most days. Well, not in the winter, but that's the authentic me. I, I, I can attest that you do not need to wear, you know, the stiff, well-pressed white shirt in a fancy wood paneled office. You can, if you want, you know, if, if that well, that's what cl- does it for you. Cl- and Clients, clients who that. like that will look for that. Right. And clients who exactly. don't care about that will but that's continue not to not care to about it. that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Those aren't the clients I want. I, I want people who want really good, uh, you know, knowledge and advice and planning who aren't interested in being pampered by showing up to a fancy office by greeted by a receptionist with an impossibly good smile who, who knows what coffee drink you prefer and has it made waiting for you. There's people who want that. If you want to pay for it, great. I'm not saying I'm no frills. I mean, my advice is solid. I know it is, but it's just a virtual thing. It ended up because of the pandemic, all my clients found me on Facebook. So they're scattered throughout the country. My, my practice just sort of became all virtual. That wasn't what I necessarily set out for, but it's how it worked out and I'm happy about it. And and I wear t-shirts on, on my uh, Zoom meetings with clients and they're, they're okay with that. They actually like it. For a lot of people said like, we like that you don't try to dress a certain part or look a certain way. So how, just how do you help them get from just the Facebook group where you're a handy contributor, but for all anybody knows, like you're just a, a, a random dude who is a retiree with too much time on their hands who likes talking to other people, uh, yeah. right? Like that wouldn't even necessarily know that you are an an industry person. How, how do you get them from, you know, you're one of 31,000 people who happens to contribute to this Facebook group to, no, no, I actually like do this for a living and I kind of like you to hire me. Like just how um, do they cross that line or is there anything that you do to help them cross that line? I, I have a website, obviously, and I like to think the website's pretty good, pretty clean, has a good flow, good calls to action, really descriptive about my services and fees. Again, flat fee, it's easy to be descriptive and transparent. Uh, so when, when they do eventually go to my site, that answers a lot more of their questions in terms of what I do, what I don't do, what they can expect. And how do they find your website um in the live videos I, I did have you know every time i did this live video i had an intro saying i'm andy panko owner of tenant financial and i had a little like name uh splash up on the page i just said you know owner of tenant financial so I, I did mention you know people knew if they cared to to look for five seconds they knew what i did and where i worked but i didn't really harp on that and, and i guess just uh practically speaking like it's it's your group so like you can right. do the Wednesday night broadcasts for an hour because it's your group. And, you know, it's if, if you decide it's fine to at least note your firm name in the, you know, in the lower third of your video for your broadcast, like you, you get to do that. Yes, exactly. like, that's yeah, one yeah. of the good things when you build your own space, you, you get to, you get to set that framework. Uh, and so that, I guess that just feeds on itself at that point. Yeah. So, I mean, it was as much as I wasn't in your face about it, it, it was 
pretty easy to find out or know that I was in this business and find out what my firm name is. So, so people did their diligence on me. I have, and you know, when they do that, they'd come across, I have a monthly newsletter I've been doing since 2019. Uh, I have these videos that are all on YouTube as well. I have a YouTube channel. So like I have a lot of content I added this building body of content where people can go to find out more about me through the group, through YouTube, through my newsletter, through my website. So anything they wanted to know about me for the most part, you know, was readily available with uh, a few minutes of searching. Um, so when they did feel ready to actually reach out, they'd set up a prospect call, which I can do right through my website, uh, through schedule once, um, we'd have this hour long prospect call with everyone, except some people we can tell right off the bat, it's not a good fit and cut it short, but otherwise it's an hour. And, uh, that's where we really hash out. Uh, are they the right fit for me? Am I the right fit for them? Find out more about them, what they want, what they're looking for, what their personality is. And then after that, you know, if the ball is complete in their court, I, I never once followed up with someone after a prospect call again, because I didn't want to be salesy. Um, but I was okay with that because I was getting enough clients that I didn't feel the need to have to go, you know, play that part. I left it to people in their own volition to, to get back to me if they wanted to. Now, if I wanted to push a little bit, sure, I probably could have got more clients faster. But, um, I, you know, I, I felt cringy about following up like, hey, it's been two weeks, you know, just checking in. What's new? I don't want to do that. That, you know, that's not in my DNA. So then what has this added up to? I mean, like what, what business have you gotten from it? What does the business look like today? So now I'm at, um, February of 2022 is when I formally announced to the world, uh, via Facebook group and my newsletter that that's it. No more prospect calls. I was at 38 clients at that time, but there was another five or six in the hopper, let's say that, you know, that I suspected would be starting soon. So that was going to get me to 45-ish. Plus, I figured with all the prospect calls I had, there's going to be some other folks that eventually come around at some point. And, and sort of 50 was my hard cap of where I don't want to go over. So, so that was it. That was February. I said, no more. I'm done. Um, had 38. I'm ultimately at 43 now. Still another few more going to trickle in in the next few months. And that's that. And what I've been doing is since February, I've been freely giving away all prospects. Even though I told people I'm done, I still get a few emails a week being like, I know you're not taking on new clients, but can I hire you? Which is which blows my mind that this is happening. Um, and I don't even have a wait list. I just, what I've done is on my business website, I created a list of now 20 something other advisors that I freely give away all prospects to with you know nothing in return. Um, it's so your website that, literally has a list of yeah. other advisors you can work with that are not me. You now follow my website about services and fees and what I do. Follow it down at the bottom. It says, sorry, we're not accepting clients, but you can check out our free resources. There's a bunch of free downloadable stuff. Again, no lead capture behind it. Or check out this list of advisory referrals. And right on my main menu bar, my website on the homepage is advisor referrals link. You go there. It's, I think, 21 other advisors now that all more or less do what I do. Flat fee, fee only, retirement focused, uh, ideally some element of tax planning that do uh, planning and investment management for, for a flat fee. And, and I was like, how does someone get on such a magical list? <laughs> uh, at first it was people I was aware of who do this. Uh, initially it was like three or four people. And then not surprisingly, you know, as I started publicizing this on LinkedIn and in Facebook, other advisors like, hey, uh, I meet those criteria. Can I get on? Or I've, I've had people change up their business model to get on the list. Interesting. And I have probably, if, uh, I don't know, a couple calls a week or Zooms with other advisors who are curious about the flat fee model or, you know, the list or doing what I do and how I do it. Um, not to make this a fee discussion, but flat fees is definitely a differentiator. I, I don't lead with that. You know, I lead with, I, I do really good retirement 
uh, tax efficient retirement planning. The flat fee thing is is no doubt a big differentiator and and uh, you know a blue ocean, if you will. Where I have gotten a lot of clients that wouldn't have hired me if I was percent of AUM because they like the flat fee thing. And what does your typical client look like who who goes into this model? Um, so my ideal client, and this is ultimately what I have is single or married. They were or are W2 wage earner in or near retirement, likely own a home, often a second home, whether it's a rental or vacation property, uh, have social security, maybe a pension, um, you know, a, a random smattering of financial accounts, legacy 401ks, IRAs, Roth IRAs, HSAs, uh, may or may not have cash value life insurance. Some may or may not have annuities. Uh, kids are usually all grown. I have one client; they still have a you know someone in high school, but um, fair, fairly vanilla, if you will. Is, is and there a, they have a few million dollars asset size? So a few million dollars. Yeah. So I, I don't have a formal asset minimum, but I mean, let's let's face it. Do the math. If I'm charging eight or nine grand a year, someone's gonna look at my website. They got five hundred thousand bucks. I'm, I'm not paying this clown nine grand. I, I can go to the run of the mill one percent AUM guy down the street and pay five thousand. Now, honestly, I, I can say pretty confidently my, my, my service and my tax planning is most likely better than uh, most folks out there. So the service is better, but still they're not going to pay. Most people won't pay thousands of dollars more than, you know, five right. grand. So, so you, not coincidentally, so you everyone's now getting clients that have a, a, mil, a million or a few dollars, which means your fee still ends up being some you know, correct somewhere, somewhere between 40 and 80 basis points, depending on how large their accounts are. And they, they kind of self self-regulate themselves into that space. Yep. And I do have an informal limit. Um, you know, I can say this with confidence and I'm sure you know this as well. Whether someone's got 1 million bucks or 3 million bucks, there's, there's frankly no difference in what we do or the complexity, or at least asset size alone has zero bearing on complexity and, and other stuff. But at some point it does matter. You got a hundred million bucks. That's a very yeah. different game. Yes. Um, so I sort of draw the line, you know, 10 million ish net worth, seven or 8 million investable assets is where I cap it. Anyone over that, I just, you know, I've had 10 or 15 people reach out to me like that. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not for you. Sorry. Um, and what I, what I do do is it's flat fee and I do ratchet it down for existing clients. And my thought is some of my clients are never going to spend on their money. Others will. Uh, you know, they're all in accumulation stage. Eventually, some of these portfolios will drop, whether it's market declines or spending. And, and I do ratchet the fee down such that it's not substantially more than 1% of AUM on the way down. Um, I don't do that for new clients because, like I said, I don't, I don't want to fill up a business of $100,000 accounts where I'm making 1000 bucks every year. But for existing clients, my thought is they would have already paid me for multiple years, my full freight. Uh, maybe a lot of the planning work and, and complexities behind us, you know, social security's on, pensions on, they may be sort of cruise control and not to say there's not going to be long-term care things that pop up or death in the family or whatever, but you know, a lot of the heavy lifting may be done. So conceptually it, it doesn't pain me to, uh, you know, to drop the fee over time as their assets go down. So, so are you, I was going to ask, like, are, are you just like automatically and always bringing client fees down or just specifically like, if I have a client who's literally depleting their own wealth and the wealth gets so low that they would essentially be like uh, under $900,000 of assets, I'm going to charge them a lower fee so it so my fee doesn't add up to more. The, the latter, what you said. So everyone's fee is what it is and it stays that way indefinitely. Well, I say indefinitely with air quotes. So as far as inflation increases, my, my handshake agreement with folks is your fee, the dollar amount is hard coded in our advisory agreement. It doesn't go up or go down unless we mutually decide to change it. But everyone sort of verbally is in agreement with that. The other verbal agreement, and I haven't done those yet. My, my thought was every handful of years, I'll reassess uh, and maybe do some inflation increases. And then, like I said, on the way down, for those whose portfolios do decline, 
whether it's spend down or assets such that their portfolio size with me is now, you know, noticeably over 1%, uh, or my fee equates to more than 1%, then I'll start stepping their fee down. So has that actually cropped up yet? I mean, it has. Some of my earlier clients at my lower fee price, you know, their their assets were kind of close to one percent of AUM. Okay. Now with market declines alone, um, they've gotten there plus you know decumulation. So just just this last quarter, I stepped down three people, and I do an increment of twelve hundred dollars just because I, I want to be. I don't know. I like simple round numbers. So you know, quarterly fees are always in even hundred dollar increments. Well, I was going to say, how do you actually bill this fee? Like, do you, do you bill it annually? Do you bill it monthly? Do you bill it from their bank account? Do you bill it from their investment accounts? As it sounds like they do yep. tend to have investable dollars. How, how does yeah. that fee work for you? It's mechanically no different than fee deductions under percent of AUM. So the, the fee does come out quarterly from their accounts under my management. The amount of fee that comes out of each account is simply prorated based on each account's total size as of quarter end. Um, I use Capitec to do, you know, uh, billing. So it does all the calculations for me. Capitec easily accommodates flat fee. So from that perspective, functionally, operationally, no different than percent of AUM. The difference is how you derive the dollar amount that gets deducted. Mine's fixed every quarter. Percent right. of AUM, it, you know, it fluctuates. It's whatever it is at that quarter. Okay. So pretty so, straightforward, actually. So as you look back on this, like what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? Um, how well the Facebook group worked. If, if I didn't do that or it didn't take off, I honestly don't know where I'd be now. I, I think I'd be like most advisors two years in, still trying to figure out what works, what doesn't, still considering like, yeah, is, is this thing going to actually gonna actually work for me? Um, and so it, it was a pleasant surprise, but the Facebook group was complete, uh, you know, virtually all my business came from that. And what, what is the asset base add up to now? I mean, I know you don't, you don't operate on an AUM model, but you're still taking managed accounts as part of the business. Yep. So 43 clients, I currently have about 70 million in the next, uh, few weeks, there's going to be another five, 6 million coming in, um, from, you know, from those clients that are in the process of rolling over. So I don't know. 75, maybe 80. Wow. So room for a few more clients. So I'm kind of hoping I don't hit SEC level, honestly. Why not? Um, I don't know, just more process and something to do. I mean, I'm registered now in New Jersey, California, New York, and uh, Texas while exempted in Texas. Um, just you know, it seems like unnecessary process to have to do that. And, and if I do do it, I don't know. I don't know if SEC is any more work or more likely of getting examined or whatever, but it just seems like why, why go through that if I don't have to, you know, just cap it to below 90 million or hundred million or whatever it is. So any, anything else in, in retrospect that just like that you did in the Facebook group that seems to have made it work so well. Again, just I'm thinking all the advisors out there that at least that quote unquote do uh, Facebook or do social media and are, to put it mildly, you know, not having results like 70 plus million of assets in two years from scratch such that now you're referring the excess out because you can't handle it. Uh, like just what, <laughs> what did you do? I, I, I thought about that a lot and I don't, no, I've had conversations with dozens of advisors about this who wanted to know how did this work. Um, I don't know that it's repeatable for everyone, and I'm not saying I'm special, but what I think worked is a combination of clearly the tax focus. There's a wide, wide amount of people out there that are interested not just in retirement, but the tax angle of it, which most other advisors kind of disregard. So that, um, again, I, I know I, I know my stuff and, and that comes off in the videos, in the responses, and I'm authentic. It's, it's not salesy whatsoever. Uh, you know, I, I cringe at lead capture, like I said. So people respect the no sales zone. 
the videos were absolute jet fuel on, on the fire. Um, doing that video exposure was phenomenal. And just a lot and lot of time and energy. Uh, sometimes, you know, I look back at how many hours I spent on Facebook in a week. I'm like, oh, that's, that's disgusting. But this is my, or it was my sole form of business development and it cost me nothing from a monetary perspective. So why not? Right. Like this is all yeah. I'm doing with clients. Well, and I guess this, this effect that like groups are very different than pages, perhaps more, more so than yeah. and, some people. And I've heard realize. anecdotally Facebook's algorithms were starting to put a lot more focus on groups as opposed to pages because Facebook wanted to promote and get more group exposure. I don't know if that's true, but um, you know, that, that's one thing possibly. So I'm curious, like, what does a typical week look like for you at this point? Now that you're, you're more or less at the the capacity target that you had, not taking on new clients, they're getting referred out through the advisor referrals page. Like, what's a typical week for you now? Uh, it depends on the time of year. So I, I learned a lot indirectly from the other advisors I saw that that worked with my relatives. Uh, you know, the, the typical people 10 years ago, and, and I tagged along on some of these meetings was every quarter go into their office, they have this big flip book of charts and talk about economic conditions and interest rates and market returns. And, you know, my relative's eyes would glaze over. And, and the advisor at the time was like, I don't know why we do this quarterly, we should just do meetings twice a year, It'd be more productive. And that, that's that stuck with me. So that um, I always sort of thought, let, let me do semi annual meetings. And because I knew I wanted to do tax focused, I was like, we have to do one towards the end of the year to, to get in conversions and last minute distributions and RMDs or whatever. And we can firm up the tax projections, you know, income projections. So I knew there'd be one November, December. And then I was like, okay, well, you know, six months prior to that means May or June. So I, I set out early on in, in this planning stage to, to know I'd do semi annual meetings, May or June, November, December. So I cluster together my meetings. So those months are, are quite busy. The rest of the months, honestly, not too intense as you can figure out, you know, 40 something clients. I, I have the side hustle tax prep business. I did only 40 returns last year, nothing too complicated. So February, March, a little bit of April is fairly busy with tax returns. May, are those returns for your clients or just other outside returns that you're doing? A uh, bit, bit of both. Initially, when I started doing returns in 2018, I mean, I only did five, but I, I would do returns for whoever wanted me to. Um, I've, I've since stopped taking on returns for people who aren't also planning and investment management clients because I want that to be a value add to them. It's completely arm's length. It's a separate fee. There's no discount to use me. They can use whoever, but if they want me to do their taxes, I do. And, and most of them do have me. And I'm also capped that I'm, you know, I'm done taking on new tax return clients because I don't want that to get unwieldy. Um, so, so otherwise not bad. Summer's quite, you know, quite not busy. There's stuff that comes up. I do quarterly rebalancing of accounts. So that's a couple days every quarter. Um, just random servicing, client distributions, you know, contributions, stuff comes up. Uh, a few new clients I'm working through onboarding with, but otherwise I'm largely done onboarding. And, you know, that was a big portion of my time over the last two years. So, so how do you explain the, just from your end, like the value of financial planning and what you do for this eight to $9,000 fee? Oh man, I'm about to write an article about it. <laughs> um, I'm going to anger a lot of people with this. You can't quantify and measure the majority of, of the value we provide. I'm not saying there's not value there, but it's disingenuous to pretend like you can put a number on it. Some things are easy, like reviewing a tax return. I caught some errors and boom, you know, save someone 500 bucks in taxes that they would have overpaid. But there's tremendous value in social security claiming, pension claiming, um, investments, obviously, you know, low cost passive is my approach, which I know over the long term should do better than concentrated or high fee funds, but, but that's not guaranteed, right? Without 
picking course A and comparing it to what the alternative is, and then fast forwarding 30 years and looking back which one did better for the client, it is literally impossible to say how much value or benefit we can or did create for someone by doing a plan or by making recommendation X, Y, Z. And tax planning, same thing. My crystal ball about guessing future tax rates, financial market returns, inflation, client longevity, my crystal ball doesn't work. For me to pretend like it does and for me to put a number on how much tax savings this Roth conversion recommend, recommendation can have for you is, is intellectually dishonest. So, and, and I tell clients this and they're greatly appreciative of it and, and they get it. So I say, I know there's value in what I do. I can't quite put a number on it. I like to think you'll get at least, you know, the eight or $9,000 of value. If nothing else, there, there's some peace of mind, emotional value. Now that varies for different people, but knowing there's someone to walk you off the ledge in times of market turmoil or, you know, uh, someone to bounce ideas off of or someone who knows the angles to look out for and run by you the pros and cons of option A versus option B, there's value in that. That, that, that's my value presentation. Now, I know a lot of advisors w will squirm and say, this dude has no idea what he's talking about, but I'm a thinker, right? I, like I, I know I know a lot of the angles in the industry and the backstory, and I know I'm a pretty sharp dude, and I just, I know you, you can't put a value on this stuff, so I don't pretend like I can because that's disingenuous. Sorry, long-winded long answer, but and, that's- And that's literally how you're explaining it to clients and prospects. Yeah, and they like it. Now, who knows? Maybe some folks don't. Like, maybe some folks have read things I've said or videos I've done on the topic and be like, there's no way I'm hiring this guy. And they never reach out to me in the first place, in which no. case, I don't know that they don't like me. But that's fine. You know, that's all part of, I guess, yeah. screening out the prospect process, right? So what was the low point on this journey for you? <laughs> there's no single low point other than I'm real lonely sitting in my office by myself. Um, I'm a social person. I'm outgoing. I've always worked with lots of people in really large corporations in Midtown New York with commutes that were packed shoulder to shoulder, always around people, always someone to bounce ideas off of and just even casual chit chat. I have none of that now. Um, and, and I miss that. Now, don't don't get me wrong. I mean, I have a network of folks locally and and virtually other advisors and, and sort of you know, COIs and stuff I bounce ideas off of and go out to lunch with. But it's just not the same as, you know, I'm bored this afternoon. Let me look over to uh, Sally or Joe next to me and just go for a walk quick to get a coffee. I don't have that. And I miss that. Mm. Not to the point that it's uh, making me debilitatingly <laughs> depressed, but um, yeah. it, it's tough doing this as a solo. But I also hesitant about ever hiring because you know, as we discussed, clear cut focus on what I do and don't want this to be. And I can clearly visualize what it would look like to hire, what it's going to cost, what the process will be, what the compliance burdens will be. I know I can make more money hiring. You know, I've done the math behind this. I just don't think I want that. You can't unring that bell. Once you grow and start hiring, that, that's basically a one way street. And, and yep. I don't want to create, create this animal I can't undo. So yep. I'm once, really conscious about this. Once you grow the point of hiring, you have to keep growing because if you don't, your people don't get growth opportunities to move right. up and then they leave. And then you've got a business with multiple people who are leaving, which is even more painful. So yeah, there is kind of a like sort of like blowing, blowing up the, the hot air balloon. Like once you float it up to a certain level, it's really problematic to let it down. Yeah. No, you can not float it up there, but once you get up there, you kind of have to keep pumping. You're up there, right. Um, so I say now steadfastly, I'll never hire, but I, I know me. Ask me again in a year. My story might be very different. Um, I, if for no other reason, to have a formal succession plan, because now, and this is what I tell clients straight up, and they seem to be okay with it. If I get hit by a bus tomorrow, we're done. You know, you lose access to me. Now your accounts are safe. They live on as they are, but the advice and planning you get from me, that that simply stops. So it will be nice to have a formal successor of, of some ilk 
Um, it would be nice to have someone to talk to. Now I'd probably have to hire virtually, not local, just because the talent pool is that much greater. And, and I realized I got a good thing here, you know, no sales, there'd be zero marketing or, you know, client acquisition requirement. It would be learned real planning. The pay would be great. The hours would be great, flexible. Um, and, and I, would like, uh, this may anger some folks as well, but I'm a white male. I have a lot of advantage in this industry. I, I, I would like to, um, give the, you know, give someone else an opportunity to, to get again, a good job. Into a role, into a position that they may not have otherwise uh, easily had, had access to. So, except uh, you don't I, actually want to hire it. Except I don't want to hire. But 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 if I did, you know, I, I'd I'd um, I'd try to hmm. mix up you know the, the demographics of what this industry looks like. So, what advice would you give to other newer advisors looking to come into the industry today? <sighs> Do you, man, you, you got to find, you know, clients and, and work and an environment and a firm that, that fits who you are, what you want to be, who you want to help. Um, that's important. Don't, don't try to be someone you're not. Don't try to dress away. You're not, don't, don't try to work at a firm. That's not your culture or fit. Cause, cause you're not going to be happy. And how do you find that? Mm, man, <laughs> as you know, it, it's really hard to come by, right? A lot of this industry is still the sales meat grinder, the wirehouses, the insurance companies. There's not a lot of good advisory firms that are looking to hire people to genuinely plan and learn without some sort of sales or production uh, requirement. So just asking around, being part of networks, you know, expand on LinkedIn, expand in person, join places like XY Planning Network, Facebook group, FPA, things like that, and just just start getting yourself out there. There are opportunities. They're just uh, few and far between, unfortunately. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that always comes up is the word success means really different things to different people. And so as someone who's had this incredibly successful growth trajectory over, uh, the past few years, you know, the business is clearly in a, in a really good place right now, but how do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah, I knew this question was coming and I thought about it for days and I don't have a, a pretty neatly packaged, succinct answer, but for me, it's, I need to feel like I'm making a positive impact on people's lives personally and professionally that coupled with it, if I'm happy, if I'm just a happy person and I enjoy what I do day to day, personally and professionally, that's it, right? If, if I made an impact on people in a good way and, and I enjoyed my time on this planet, that will have been a success. It's pretty straightforward. I, don't know, I, I just, I love you. You, you launched the firm with that clarity of vision out of the gate, right? Like 50, well, 50 clients, $6,000 in fees. Now it's more like 50 clients and $8,000 in, in fees. Like, you can do that, run your 90% margin, serve clients super well, and have a lot of work-life balance to do the things that make you happy. With that said, it's, you know, it's really hard for people to knock lifestyle practice, right? Like, uh, yeah. I don't know. I think this is, this is a pretty good gig, honestly. So, yeah. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Andy, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for all, all you do for the industry, Michael. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content, 
Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. <laughs>